Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Signpeaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Signpeaks, your host and narrator. You're listening to phase one of this podcast, in which I'll be speaking with cast and crew members from Seinfeld, sharing their stories and memories from the show. Phase two, the series itself, begins this fall. In this episode, I'm speaking with Angela Featherstone, whom Seinfeld fans will remember as Jerry's maid-slash-girlfriend Cindy in the season nine episode, The Maid. I reached out to Angie to talk about her experience playing Jerry's final girlfriend on the show, and inadvertently uncovered so much more, including her love for David Lynch's weather reports, her friendship with the late Harry Dean Stanton, and her mission to change the lives of young people aging out of foster care. Stick around after the interview for this week's musical guest. Now, without further ado, here's Angela Featherstone. Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really glad we got to talk. So, You came on the show in, I want to say, 1998, Seinfeld's ninth season. Um, Had you ever watched the show before auditioning? Uh, What was your experience with it? No, I had never seen the show before, but I had been brought in many times by uh, Mark Hirschfeld, the casting director, over the years. It was just sort of like once a year I ended up having a Seinfeld audition, and each time I would always get this message from my agent. They love you. They want to find something for you, but not this time. And um, it's not uncommon to hear that as an actor. And I didn't really pay it that much mind, except for I do remember having a good time in the room. Like there's some not good times in the room auditioning. And there's like, this was a really nice energy. But uh, yeah, so then suddenly season nine, I was aware that it, that people were talking about the big promo of like the final four. And then I just got a call to, to play that role. And it meant a lot. That's awesome. Do you remember like when you would come in to read for the previous times, do you remember who those characters were? No. That's really interesting. I've actually heard other actors say the same thing that they would come in for a part uh, on Seinfeld. I guess Larry and Jerry or whoever the casting directors were, Mark Hertzfeld liked them, didn't like them for that role, but then wouldn't bring them back. So that's really awesome that uh, that you got to come back in. That's, I didn't know that I wasn't alone in that. That's lovely, yeah. I feel like there was an integrity to that show because you can usually sense it, but also I feel like Mark Hirschfeld may be special. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. So I wanna talk a little bit about your character, Cindy. I really like the guest stars, uh, and not just on Seinfeld, but on other shows where they're not just the victim of the character's antics on the show. You know, they can kind of punch back and kind of hold their own. And I kind of got the sense of that from Cindy. When you got the role, what did they kind of do to prepare you for that? Like, what did they tell you about who that character was? Or did they just give you the lines? They just gave me the script Mm -hmm. and told me when to show up. What was your experience like on the show? My experience on that show was that Jerry Seinfeld was very sick. There was doctors and shots and all kinds of things happening nonstop. My sense was that it was just about trying to get, you know, this man who had literally lost his voice to be able to complete the show because I think they only had like one or two more episodes left and it was done. Just one. One more left. So it was, you know, they had a wrap date. They were out. 
the studio was getting cleared and there was someone else coming in and they had to get this episode and um, so they could get the next one. And he was so sick. So my, my sense of it was that it was an extraordinarily well-oiled machine that was coming to a very fast and rather abrupt end. And the star of all of this, the center of all of it was um, sick and couldn't talk. And that was uh, an impediment. Yeah, I, I you can hear that in the episode. Um, and I think I, I remember reading that he had laryngitis is what it was. Yeah. Um, and the episode they shot, I don't know if they shot it in sequence, but after yours um, was the Puerto Rican Day episode. And you, you don't hear that hoarseness. So I guess he got over it. But uh, yeah, I didn't realize that they had doctors on set. And uh, <laughs> I guess we're having to care for him while he was shooting. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's it's cool, too, that you say that they didn't have much time, but it was a well-oiled machine because there are some, and as a Seinfeld fan, there are some episodes where you can kind of tell they didn't have enough time to do a lot of takes. So they just went with the best take. And even if they got the line wrong, I didn't get that sense with this episode. It felt very, like everyone was hitting their marks. It was very well-timed. The pacing was great. The deliveries were great. I, I thought everyone was kind of at the top of their game. And that's, I don't know. That's why I enjoyed it so much. How many days uh, did you shoot your scenes for? I'm not sure but i think it was i mean it was a sitcom right so mm -hmm. we probably shot it like at night one night wow okay i mean i don't have a lot of experience on sitcoms but mm -hmm. friends i know for sure you just rehearsed all week and then you shot friday night and i feel like that's what we did on seinfeld but i could be wrong mm -hmm. but yeah i think we did you usually just shoot one day but i don't remember if it was more than that Gotcha. And it's funny that you you brought up friends because I was going to bring that up next. Um, I live in a, a house divided. I'm a big Seinfeld fan. My wife is a huge friends fan. She was really excited when she heard that I was going to be talking to you because you played such, I mean, you were in two episodes of friends, but you had a very important part in every friends fan is familiar with the, we were on a break kind of story arc. And you were the one who kind of came in and, and caused that rift, I guess, with, uh, with Ross, what was your experience like working on friends? Well, I would say while Seinfeld was my experience working opposite a comic master, which was very humbling because I worked my butt off and didn't get a laugh. And he would grunt or like bat his eyes and the place would go up in an uproar of laughter. Friends was the experience of understanding the physicality of comedy because Jim Burroughs did this thing uh, during a rehearsal. There was a joke, it was the scene with me and Matthew Perry and Matt LeBlanc at the coffee shop. And we did the joke a couple times and it just felt a little thick. The air was a little thick at that moment. And Mr. Burroughs, had me move over an inch. He said, move over an inch. And my, in my, my, I remember my thought was, really? Okay, so they're not, they're not getting a laugh. And so I'm gonna move an inch and it's gonna make something different. <laughs> and I moved an inch and everything changed. Wow. And I was blown away by what a master he was and how much there is to learn about comedy that I, had no idea. I didn't know. Like I thought that I'd been friends with a lot of comics. I 
I have sort of a long history, long relationship with comedy. And I had no idea how complex and even maybe mathematical it can be. And um, I think I got a real respect for comedy at that point. I think that's what I got from friends. And also just um, the, my big takeaway from friends was I was at the craft service table and Burroughs, well, it was tape night. And Burroughs walked, Mr. Burroughs walked past me and he said, this is your big break. He was the only thing he said to me the entire time that was not a direction from the director. It was the only personal comment. And he said, this is your big break, kid. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> and I remember just being baffled by that. I was like, what is, what, what does that mean? Yeah, and no I don't have time to absorb that right now because I'm about to go for my first, it was my first ever live taping. And I wasn't sure what that would be like. And now I'm getting direction to not fuck it up. But what does that mean? And so anyway, I, I, I just was like, I'll just store that for later. And I'm still unpacking it. But uh, I, you know, it was an honor to work with. Him. Yeah, well, and it all, it all turned out very well from what we can from what we can see now. So I, uh, when I posted on my page today that I'd be talking to you, um, I had a couple fans uh, have questions that they wanted me to ask you from other projects that you've been involved with. Hannah Babana asked me to ask you, what was it like working on Conair? Yeah, I saw that. Um, well, thanks, Hannah Babana. Conair was interesting. The first part, before we got to Las Vegas, we were up in, I think we were like in um, Park City, Utah. Actually, we were, we were in Park City, um, Utah. And it was really fun. It was, you know, it's a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Mm -hmm. And it's, like being at a wedding every day. You get picked up in like the fanciest cars and the craft service is like, just like a massive wedding and just everyone and everything is just so shiny and bright and fun. And I got to work with Steve Buscemi mm -hmm. and that was really fun. I mean, I didn't, I just would see him, you know, standing around, but he had his whole family there and that was neat to see. I liked he and Bill Pullman are the two actors that I, oh, and Skeet Ulrich are the three actors I know who would bring their families with them when they were working. And I, I loved seeing that. Yeah. It was an interesting way to, to live your life. And um, then when we got to Las Vegas, I don't particularly like Las Vegas. I'm kind of allergic to Las Vegas, I found uh -huh. out. But I would go, you had to walk through the slot machine area to go to work every day when we got to Las Vegas. And so I would sit and play the um, slot machines uh, while I was, you know, waiting for my van. And one day John Malkovich came over and uh -huh. like started talking to me and we started talking about movies. And I told him how much I loved Preston Sturgis and um, how much I loved Howard Hawks in particular and his girl Friday was my inspiration for Ginny on Con Air. Yeah, I can't remember the character's name, but the Russell and Russell character. And uh, yeah, so we had a whole conversation about His Girl Friday and I had to go to work. My van had arrived. So I left him with my big popcorn bucket filled with quarters or what, I think it's like a big Coke, plastic Coke cup. I don't remember. It was like a big thing and I'd won a lot of money and I left it for him. And then I went to work and 
was having a little bit of trouble with my co-star, John Cusack. And all of a sudden, John Malkovich appeared with this plastic container uh-huh. with this letter inside, this like three page letter that I still have. And it was this whole ode to his girl Friday. And it was this sort of letter of how he felt so horrible because he'd lost all the money I gave him and wow. uh, couldn't make, had failed to make it back. But what happened was when he appeared with that in his hand and the letter, it and made such a big deal of presenting it to me in front of everyone, it uh, upped my significance on the set. Wow. And all of a sudden, the producers were paying more attention to me in that moment. And the antics of my co star uh-huh. in that scene were then shunned. So wow. he not only gave me something beautiful, and of course, I completely, like, I obviously respect his work so much, um, John Malkovich, and so to have that special moment between, you know, for me with getting a letter from him, but also to know, you know, the politics of what his move had just done meant a lot. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, there's some really beautiful uh, people in the business and um, I cherish all four of them. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I cherish, I cherish, I cherish those wonderful experiences. Wow. Like the Mark Hirschfeld and the, and the Malkovich, I guess people with the letter M in their name or something. Something about that. That's awesome. Um, So we have another question. The Real Brewberry wanted me to ask you uh, how often you get recognized for the Army of Darkness. How often do I get it recognized for Army of Darkness? Yeah. I mean, there's a different, I mean, I don't get recognized mm-hmm. very often, but I'm also never around people. But um, I would say that I, I, I have equal amount fans from Army of Darkness as I do Friends and Seinfeld. The, Ar- the Seinfeld and Friends ones have just been a little more active because of Netflix. Yeah, for sure. I feel like with stuff that's on Netflix these days, I think that's where these fan communities are coming from. Uh, I mean, I can only really speak for the Seinfeld fan community, but I've just noticed how huge it is, especially with people who were maybe even too young to see it when it was on in the 90s. Um, I'm 30 now, so I was a kid when it came out, but I didn't really get into it until syndication. But a a lot of the people I talk to um, are, you know, they're the ones who caught it on streaming and on Hulu and things like that. So I think that's kind of been really responsible for a lot of it. Um, do you have a, a few minutes to talk about The Wedding Singer, about your experience working on, with Adam Sandler? Sure. What do you want to know? I, I just want to know kind of how, was it fun on set? It, it, you know, did you have a good time? What was your experience like? So here's my, at the table read for The Wedding Singer. I don't know what went on in the back, behind the scenes of The Wedding Singer, but I was actually engaged to the executive producer ah. and I was already, you know, I'd done comedy and had tons of development deals as a comedian and sold sitcoms. So the executive producer was my fiance. So I did an audition for it. I just was told one day, this is my role. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't think anything of it. And then I showed up at the table read and Adam was there and I'd already met him socially through my fiance who produced 
a lot of his movies. And um, I just showed up at the table read and I, you know, I worked on it obviously beforehand because I always do and did. And I have an amazing acting coach named Lee Kilton Smith and we got ready, ready. And I went to the table read and at the end of the table read, Adam turned to me and said, okay, so I guess Linda's pretty and funny. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize that I was hired because I was pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just thought I was hired because I was the producer's fiance Uh and a working successful actress. Um, But uh, it obviously meant a lot to have him tell me that I was funny. Sure. It means a lot when, to me, when comics say that I'm funny. That's awesome. Okay, so my next question comes from really just from the conversation that we had uh, before we got started today. You mentioned what I'm I'm feeling is maybe an admiration, uh, if if not being a fan of the projects of David Lynch, because my page is uh, half a Seinfeld fan page and half a David Lynch fan page. You mentioned kind of having a, a positive impression of him. C- can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, are you familiar with his movies? Uh, you know, is there something that's left an impression on you? Yeah, when I was living in Paris in the um, 80s. My roommate and I watched Blue Velvet repeatedly and we used to do performances for our friends and play the Blue Velvet soundtrack over and over and over and that was amazing. And then the movie that just came, what was it called? The Straight? The Straight Story. Oh my god. I loved that movie. Wow. Like I'm a bit of a film buff Mm -hmm. but I have my own path. And I really love simplicity. I love Ozu, the Japanese filmmaker, and I love mm-hmm. Godard. Mm. And also there's a movie called Tender Mercies that I love with Robert Duvall and Tess Harper. And um, I feel like the straight story is a hybrid of all of those movies. Wow. It hits me in my sweet spot and I loved it. And I also had a very long uh, friendship with Harry Dean Stanton. And I love Sissy uh, SpaceX. So. Yeah. Wow. And that's um, the straight story is one of the few movies of his that I, I haven't seen yet. Um, but I had a very similar emotional reaction just recently watching The Elephant Man for the first time. Um, oh. And just kind of the way that he approaches sort of the humanity of characters. Um, I, I thought it was very very moving. And uh, the straight story has been on my to-do list for a long time, especially because I have a three-year-old now. So I'm looking for sort of, you know, obviously not a kid's movie, but something that's more family friendly than watching Lost Highway. And uh, really glad that you said that. Yeah. And I love his weather report. Oh my gosh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so great. I used to say last year, I was listening to this, um, how would I describe, it's called Aquarian Transmissions. And um it basically gives you the weather report of all of the planets every day. Uh-huh. And I used to say, I get all the news I need from the Aquarian Age transmissions. And I feel like he's the next level of that. I get all the news I need from the David Lynch weather report mm-hmm. and meditation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Between the two, it's not one alone is not enough, but it's nice to meditate and then listen to the weather report and remember you know a little humor is important but also it's nice to be connected to other introverts out in the world yep and uh this past year i think has been a very good time to to learn 
some of those lessons. Um, I'm big on meditation myself. I mean, in a very casual way, I've never trained or anything. I just do kind of guided stuff. Um, what, what do you do when you meditate? This is something that I think some folks might find useful. And um, how have you kind of, because I mean, everyone's been feeling more anxious over the past year, and I'm only asking this because you brought up meditation. Uh, what kind of tools do you use kind of when you're going to get in that mode, uh, that anxious space to kind of get yourself out of there? Well, I try not to get into an anxious space. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't really get into an anxious space anymore. Um, I am triggered by sound, mm -hmm. you know, like hammering and construction going on right above me <laughs> and next to me is very triggering for me. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose I could consider that a form of anxiety, but it's not like the massive tidal wave type of anxiety that I had 2016 and, and prior. Mm -hmm. 2016 for me was basically, I had sort of had a, an L, always an element of being shut down, which sort of padded me from anxiety. But then when I lost that, all of a sudden, life was just excruciating. And uh, everything was like a live wire, I was just triggered the entire year. And that was when I had to out of absolute desperation, start to find anything and everything that would help me. And at that moment, in this sort of life raft moment of my life, I guess, as I as I would refer to it right now, Pema Children helped a lot. Alan Watts, Tara Brock. I have a, a religious teacher uh, who's a neo-Hasidic Kabbalist. Mm -hmm. And so I would go to temple every week. And um, the, so the Hebrew prayers really helped me a lot. The Amidah and just every week doing the, the Shabbos prayers. And for me, definitely, and being in nature helps a lot. I grew up in Northern Canada and was outside alone a lot and developed a real connection. I probably already had one. But the relationship between me and nature and nature as a comfort and nature mm -hmm. as a, an access to the divine yeah. by sort of tuning into the wavelengths or the energy of nature, I'm much closer to a place where I can connect with the divine. That has always helped. And so now when I just, because of all of that, when I go to nature now, I'm automatically in it. So all I need to do, like I ground a lot, I'll often just get up and go to the park sit my butt down on the grass and go for a hike, go for a run, do some stairs because I need to also be very physical. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm someone who I can meditate all day long, but if I'm not also hiking or hugging a tree and hugging a tree and grounding and really? doing tons of exercise, it doesn't do me any good. Like I'm very physical. So there's that. Um, yeah. And now for the last couple of years, I've had a daily uh, Kundalini practice. Mm -hmm. I, I do the um, Gurmukhi mantra mixed with breath work. Um, there's a couple of, uh, there's also David Elliott breath work technique that I uh, love and will practice sometimes, but it's not terribly dissimilar from the uh, Kundalini breath work practices that are intrinsic to the particular Kriya. And so basically I sort of live in, in a meditative world now. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have much opportunity for anxiety. I also have been, I haven't looked into, 
I, well, that's not true. I've started to look into neuro-linguistic programming and the people that I've seen online aren't interesting to me, but there's someone I found on YouTube who I am interested in and he's told me about his school. And so I'm just starting now to look into this NLP uh, world. Yeah. But it's because it's similar to what the work that I've been doing the last couple of years, which is basically trying to change my my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and for example, like I said, like I've always been very triggered by sounds and I'm probably neurodivergent. I now know, but it can really create in me a sense of being trapped if there's a lot of outside stimulation, especially like noise or overwhelming smell so what i've had to do because there's very even meditation and hiking and all of that doesn't really help what i've had to do is just get in there and start to question my thoughts why i feel trapped so then going into the thought of i feel trapped and am i trapped and just basically questioning everything so yeah so the thinking the breath work and the meditation and the hiking alone does not ultimately work until I start to also reprogram my mind. Yeah. And just in case someone's really into this, I will also put it, do a shout out for amino acids. Mm -hmm. Because when I started to do all of this work, I realized I'm healing trauma. And so, and reprogramming my mind. And I know that your body needs amino acids to create new DNA. So I thought since I'm changing, we know that trauma alters DNA that means to me that it's very possible that healing trauma changes DNA. So if we're going to be changing DNA, I need to make sure I'm eating a really well-balanced diet with lots of fruits and vegetables and also taking supplements and amino acids. And I get um, my blood work, my blood panels done by my homeopath once or twice a year, depending lately, obviously it's twice a year to make sure that I'm at my optimal health. And I go, I say all of this, and you might be like, and I just wanted to know about your meditation style. No, no, t- give it, give it all, all okay. you got. I've got a lot more, but the truth, but it's just, I'm thinking, why are you talking about this? And then no. I just created a healing school for children aging out of foster care mm-hmm. last year. And basically what we do at that, or what we're going to do, because I've just created it. Um, we just got 501c3 in California a, a month or two ago is this exactly it's the paradigm that that i inadvertently created as i was healing my trauma um that i am now with my healers going to replicate for this particularly uh vulnerable group that is also a group that i identify with i i aged out of foster care mm-hmm. although technically i convinced the judge to emancipate me before i turned 18 i was in foster care and, and left. So. Gotcha. Well, I, I'm really glad that you got to this topic because I wanted to give you a space here at the end of our time to talk about what, what you're passionate about, projects you're working on, um, your advocacy. I know that you've done a lot of work for children. You've done work uh, in the human trafficking space. What are you working on right now that I can um, put out to the folks listening? Well, thank you. That's very conscious of you and it means a lot. And I'm also happy because I kind of talked a lot about the healing work already. We can also just have like a really fun entertainment industry conversation. So right now I'm working on an essay about forgiveness culture, which is sort of my, I just went through an experience where I was called to let go of a lot of uh, hurt and disappointment 
that I had related to some things that happened in at work on TV shows and a movie uh, in the 1990s. And um, as it left, I immediately felt such an incredible sense of, of uh, freedom. And I also then had a renewed vigor for the first time in decades to go back to work as an actor mm-hmm. in ways that I really had not had since 1998. So I'm writing an essay about that as, as, an, as the next level to cancel culture. Like to me, how I understand cancel culture is I'm being triggered by you. I want you to stop. And I know in my own personal work, at a certain point of being triggered and being angered by the trigger, I have to go in and fix my own triggers. It's like the trigger, being triggered is, a, is, is like your subconscious way of saying there's something there. Like when I'm triggered by something someone says or does, or noise, whatever, often, although not always, but often there's a rabbit hole that is begging to be gone down. And at the bottom is some subconscious truth that is longing to be released. And so what I experienced is that by doing that over and over and over again, I was easily freed of just decades of, of sadness and disappointment and heartbreak that had culminated after two unexpected and unfortunate experiences at work in 1997 and 98. And um, I'm writing this essay basically just to communicate that, that, at, you know, at, to, sum, to summarize it, I would say my triggers are my problem and the way to heal them truly is forgiveness, but it's easier said than done. Sure. And what else am I doing? Well, I'm still, I'm, I'm at the seed fundraising stage of my nonprofit school. Well, it's not just mine, it's the boards. And we have a wonderful board. We have an amazing advisory board. And we're hoping to open the doors of our healing school for youth, for AB12 youth uh, in Los Angeles County, children aging out of foster care. And they receive a, a stipend if they're in school. And I've already talked to some people at the DCFS and they're more than happy to, to grant us that. And we're just waiting for the IRS to give us the, the 501c3 status as a school and we'll be opening. And so that's always going on. And then as you may have noticed, I think you did. And thank you for all your support on Instagram. I've just recently started to, to put an acting reel together and mm-hmm. start taking some pictures of, of something other than clouds and trees and uh, posting those up to let people, you know, get a sense of who I am and where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm also sort of excited about working as an actor and almost more excited to see who comes, who, uh-huh. uh, who wants to work with me now. Oh man. Okay. So this is, and I'm having trouble getting through this because this conversation went from what I had planned on asking you about, which was a couple of questions about being in an episode of Seinfeld into something so much bigger and I'm really, really happy that we had to have that we got to have such a larger conversation. And I'm very excited for what you've got going on and what's coming next. Um, r- what is the name of the school that you're working on? I don't know if you mentioned it already. Well, it's um, fosteringcare.org. Fosteringcare.org. Okay. And uh, for the folks who uh, don't know where to find you, where can they find you to follow along with you on Instagram and Twitter and stuff like that? Angela underscore Featherstone, I think. And I think on, on Twitter, I'm Angie Says, S-E-Z, which I've been wishing I could change for so long, but I, I don't think you can. And um, 
there's three people that I wanted to talk about just very briefly that I love and respect deeply. Um, one is when, when I was a teenager, I met Michael O'Donohue. Uh, he was one of the, I think, the first writer, first season of SNL and uh, writer for Mad Magazine for a long time and just a genius. And I got to spend a summer watching him write a script and that profoundly impacted me. And I think that there's something to be said for osmosis mm -hmm. and for finding people that you admire and absorbing them. It took me a long time to be able to realize what it was I was doing. And I realized I was studying what it was like to be a writer uh, by watching him write. And at the time I was like, what are you, why are you, is, are you, are you weird? Is it weird to just watch someone write every day, five days a week? Uh -huh. And then Richard Jenny had a huge impact on my life. I saw him, I was at Just Career Comedy Festival in Montreal and I was walking down a hallway and I heard someone on stage in a big room and I looked and I watched Richard Jenny performing and was blown away I had seen um the opportunity to hang out with Michael Jackson and Don King at the Four Seasons Hotel before uh the Thriller wow. tour concert uh -huh. and I felt and so I had like backstage access to yeah. Michael Jackson that tour and I felt like Richard Jenny was was similar watching huh. Richard Denning at just career had a very similar impact and in terms of their presence not necessarily on me it was just like wow that guy is mega right and then later we got to become friends and and uh the phone, few phone conversations that we had over the years have let have been an, you know an indelible impact on my life and um I think I think my friendship with Harry Dean Stanton Mm -hmm. I, I would love to hear about, and I'll tell you a lot of the folks who are going to be listening to this would love to hear about that because they've seen him. I mean, in so many films, but obviously all of uh, David Lynch's projects that he was involved in, um, a lot of the fans are, are going to want to hear about your connection with Harry. Sure. I'll tell you. And also too, you know, Charlotte Stewart was in Eraserhead. Oh, and yes. She was a really, she played my mother in Dark Angel, The Ascent, ah. my very first lead. And I, I met her on that movie and we became good friends and she was my LA mama for a very long time. And I haven't seen her or talked to her in a couple of years, Wow! but uh, yeah, I love, she's a beautiful, beautiful girl. And mm -hmm. yeah, she had a lovely, she got to come back for the third season of Twin Peaks that shot a few years ago and she had a, a fantastic scene and every interview that I've seen uh, her do um, just seems like a very sweet person. She's a lovely person. Oh. Yeah, she's amazing. So, um, so Harry Dean, I met Harry Dean the summer that I, I forgot all of this, but recently I ran into uh, Mitch Glazer, mm -hmm. the husband of Kelly Lynch and uh, esteemed writer. And uh, he reminded me of all of these stories. I did not, I was not aware that Michael O'Donoghue was actually at the party where I met Harry Dean. And so I met Harry Dean, he and Dean Stockwell were on the Paris, Texas press tour. And there was a party at uh, the Roots store in Toronto where I had recently arrived. So I connected with Harry Dean. He was lovely and he was telling me all these fascinating stories. And I, I'm sure I'd seen Cool Hand Luke mm -hmm. at that time. 
and certainly loved that movie. And he was fantastic in that movie. So he was, regaled me with a bunch of stories and then started to cry and uh, then asked me to come to his hotel, which I declined. And then years later found out that that was what he did was he would cry. It's a oh. horrible, he's going to kill me for, for saying that story, but it's, it's character. I love it. I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. It's a, it's a unique, it's a unique old school tactic to cry, to try to get a girl to come to your hotel. <laughs> and I've always admired effort um, mm-hmm. and uniqueness. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, I did not go, but um, we stayed in touch. And years later, I was having a particularly hard day uh, in New York and I called him and um, I was having a particularly hard day because I was in a particularly dark time. It wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't having a bad day. I was having a bad month mm-hmm. um, in the midst of a bad year. Um, but anyway, I reached out to Harry Dean as I felt because he was always very cool. He's always just so cool. He was mm-hmm. like liquid gold. And um, I re- called him and I said, Harry Dean, you know, I'm so sad. I'm so I'm having such a hard time. And uh, I might have said, I, I can't stop doing heroin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, Angie, no pain, no gain. I got to go. I'm high. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And uh, he was always, whenever I would visit him, he would, he was, he was just always, he was such a character. He was like, you know, I guess in some ways I, I uh, aspire to be like that. He was always a character in a movie all the time. Mm -hmm. We always, every day he would do his um, I Ching. Mm -hmm. He would like cast the runes. He was always smoking. Yeah. Just like liquid gold is what I would call Harry Dean. He was as he was as authentic the last time I saw him, which was he did a concert downtown. I think it was a birthday party concert hmm. for him of like a year before he died. Hmm. And uh, it was amazing. And I saw him. That was the last time I ever saw him. But I would see him, you know, many times over the last 10 years. And uh, I went to an opening with him and went to a few parties with him. And he took me to some Oscar parties that were fun that had like, you know, Jack Nicholson and, you know, all of his friends at, I met Al Pacino with him, but uh, also just, I loved just sitting at his house and watching him play music and sing. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's special. I, I'm really glad that we uh, we got here. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. No. It's 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 funny because it's all, it's been in the last few months talking to Mitch Glazer and and also just with this opportunity to do to do more talking about myself. But I'm at this place where I'm realizing like I've had some really remarkable people that I've had the opportunity to witness. Yeah. In my lifetime, and I I would like to maybe focus for myself more on those amazing opportunities that I had I was recently doing another podcast and and I realized when I was done I I talked about Pee Wee Herman's big adventure but I Uh at the same time when I was so I was living in Paris and my roommate was this girl Meredith who's 
Canadian, we were obsessed with Blue Velvet. We mm-hmm. dressed up and did Blue Velvet shows with our wigs and the whole thing all the time. Um, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, we had memorized. And also Eddie Murphy's, is it Sasquatch? It's either raw or, del- or delirious. But well, actually both of the Eddie Murphy live records, we played yeah. on a loop. And it was like a challenge to try to memorize as much of his bits as we could. Mm-hmm. I'm happy that Eddie Murphy's been working again. Oh, me too. I love him so much. Yeah. And he's he's just the maestro, right? He's mm-hmm. there's nothing like it. This yeah. there's nothing like government cheese and the ice cream man. I remember when I first heard the ice cream truck is here and you can't afford it because you're on the welfare. Uh-huh. I just was like, oh my God. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah, a, a living legend. Um, one of those people that you know, our kids and grandkids. You know, when we talk about the comedians that were alive in our time, I, I would say he's definitely going to be one of the one of the big ones. Who else? Oh God, I mean, I mean that's I, by the way why I shout out for Richard Jenny mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't know about him because he had really tragic death of, of 10, 15, 15, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and I just don't hear people talking about him. But his right. He's worth looking at. He's worth I, going back and watching. He was special. I'm going to go back and watch him because I'm not familiar with uh, with yeah. Richard Jenny's stand-up. He's, he's great. And, but he's not Eddie Murphy, but he was really great. So, yeah. Who else is there? Eddie Murphy? Well, I'll tell you, when we lose Mel Brooks, I'm going to be oh, heartbroken um, for a very long time. Um, not just because we share a last name, but uh, just because of, I mean, his massive body of work. I mean, that's one of the, you know, from that classic era that uh, that's going to be a hard one. To get It'll over. be, yeah, that'll be a, an energy changer for sure. Also Godard, not funny. Not oh my funny, God. Yeah. But I mm-hmm. feel like yeah. his presence is in on earth is definitely holding up a timeline for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one of the ones that um, I think of him because I studied Godard in college, that it's just something that was amazing that happened in the past. And to know that he's still around and still making art is uh, it's very, very remarkable. Have you seen definitely. his last couple of movies? No, oh, I haven't seen any of his recent they're films. They're so good. They're yeah. even better than ever. Yeah, if you can imagine. I've got a lot to uh, a lot, a lot to catch up on. I'm a dad of a three-year-old and uh, I don't get a lot of time to watch movies these days. Um, I've been missing uh, some of that, some of just digesting massive amounts of film. Yeah. And also I think that there's a time for that. I haven't been, I haven't been doing much movie watching lately, although I will often watch Ozu movies just because to me, what he does is he just, he makes an art form out of authenticity Mm -hmm. in a way that, it's like hyper authentic, maybe, um, because I mean, yeah. one could argue that Coppola does that too. And I, yeah. I feel like that I wrote a script a few years ago called Pine Falls, which is a, a, a one hour drama about a, a small town character drama uh, with the crime mm-hmm. of the trafficking of, of Native girls out of foster care to the oil fields. And it was uh-huh. based on my childhood. It was based on growing up in, in Manitoba. And everyone that read it said it was a lot like uh, David Lynch. And where did I come up with this wild story? And uh-huh. I was like, oh, it's actually just based on my life. Like, it's real right. almost. 
And uh, I feel like in that sense, what I love about David Lynch is I feel like in many ways, he's really authentic. Yeah. He's just accentuating authenticity, but it's, I don't, yeah, I don't know enough about his work to really make a comment on it, but people have said that Pine Falls was like Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. I can, I can hear that. Uh, based on the synopsis you kind of gave me, there's, there's definitely a, a similarity there. Focus on small town characters and there's a lot of different interpretations of the show, but the way I see it, it's uh, how people individually and collectively deal with trauma and Uh, deal with loss. Um, At the heart of it, there's uh, the story of Laura Palmer, who's a victim of um, incest and sexual abuse and murder. Oh, it's very, it's very my life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, and, and he treats it in such a human way that there's, um, you see the the brutalness of what people go through, but then you see the gentleness of the human spirit and kind of how it perseveres through these things and how it processes these things. And sometimes it's in a supernatural way. Um, but I think that there's a there's a there's a human heart at the heart of his stories. Twin Peaks is one of those, but Blue Velvet as well that kind of shines through. And it's like it's what you're talking about. It's how do these things affect us as humans, and how do we deal with them on our own and with each other. It's really beautiful. And I feel like it's very much what I've been talking about, what yeah. we've been talking about. Absolutely. I, I haven't said it, but that's been on my mind. I, now that you're talking about your stepping back out, putting yourself back out there in the acting world. I mean, I'm just going to say it in the next few years, I want to see you working in David Lynch's next project. I think that would be just so, so cool. Um, I think you're the right kind of person that could make a connection uh, with a story like that. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I've been fantasizing for a while that he, that, because people said like, it's so, Pine Falls is so much like David Lynch that I was thinking, well, then he meditates. <laughs> he should call. Yeah. <laughs> he mm-hmm. should hear that. If it's right, he will. Um, and yes, what I aspire to is having dreams come true. And for me, one of the dreams that I have is being around like-minded people and being around like it sounds like you know my sense of you you've just been so open to to my natural flow today you know being around people for whom integrity and kindness are what's the word it's in the constitution but um there 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 are things that you you choose to not live without we hold these rights to be inalienable inalienable rights um I don't know maybe inalienable yeah inalienable means something that you can't Mm -hmm. alienate right so yeah Mm -hmm. so inalienable uh convictions does that Mm -hmm. make sense so anyhow yeah it definitely does yeah oh cool okay so um I don't want to take up too much of your time today I just wanted to kind of close out and say um this was really cool and it started out because you had a single episode, three or four scenes uh, in season nine of Seinfeld. And it kind of grew into this larger conversation that I think is going to be really enriching for some people. And I'll just let you know, since you said you haven't really watched the show over the years, your character, you were only in one episode, but you, in the minds of fans, that character joins the ranks of, I mean, really a world of characters and some amazing actors that uh, appeared on the show over the years. Catherine Keener, Anna Gunn, uh, Terry Hatcher, um, just so many actors who really kind of created this world 
along with you. And I consider, you know, you and, and every actor who appeared on that show an equal part in kind of building that world that has been just a, a source of comfort for a lot of people, source of laughs. Um, I went back and watched uh, your episode this morning for the first time in a few years, and I don't think I stopped laughing for the full 25 minutes at every scene. Uh -huh. There's one line that you say uh, where you're talking about, I, th I think it was a maid that worked with you at the maid service and her name was Coco. And you just say kind of, Coco, that girl's all right. And you delivered it perfectly. And I don't know if you knew this when you read the line, but that's a, it's a direct reference to something that someone said in a previous episode talking about Coco the chimp. Um, and their line was literally Coco, oh, that chimp's all right. So for fans, that line was a callback and, and you kind of just saying it naturally. I don't know. It was, it was, it's a fun episode. It's full of laughs and uh, I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to say thank you for it. Well, thank you. And that does sound like something that either my brilliant coach Lee or the director might have worked with me on. Uh-huh. Yeah. So as cool. I, I'm, I would love to take credit for intuiting that, but that does sound awfully similar to something someone probably told me to do specifically. <laughs> I see. Okay. Well, um, Angela, I'm going to give you the last word before we end this today. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Uh, any, anything you've got in the works that you want to promote? Uh, any, you know, charities you want people to support? Anything like that? Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And it's an honor to be here and, and congratulations on all your success and, and may it be continued. Well, thank you. I have, we have fosteringcare.org and no, I'm just, I'm, I'm very, I'm grateful to be here. I'm just going to go about my day. I don't have much else to say. I feel like I've really yeah. said it all and I'm grateful to you for that. Of course. And, and we're grateful to, to have you here with us. So uh, folks, um, everything that Angela mentioned today, I'm going to include in the show notes so that you can go check it out yourself. And once again, Angela Featherstone, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to Angie for coming on the show. Since this interview, she's launched a new website for her nonprofit school. You can find it at theppp.us. I've included that link in this episode's show notes, as well as an article Angela wrote for Dame on how her own experience with sex trafficking influenced her advocacy work. This week's musical guest is Richard Orofino. The Brooklyn-based artist has been producing music since 2013 and released his debut self-produced EP, Spell, last year. You can find Richard's music on TikTok, Spotify, Instagram, and YouTube. Here with the premiere of his new single, Fake Me, is Richard Dorofino. Lately, I'm feeling crazy, my legs been getting shaky. It's like the fake me, it's trying to erase me. I think he hates me, wants to push my daisies, but I relate to him. Better than a shirt, sinking in his teeth, to my shoulders bleed, but he lives red free. And when he gets too close and I can't even breathe, he says he'll never leave me. And all I know is lately, I'm feeling crazy, my legs been getting shaky. Like a fake me, he's trying to replace me I think he hates me, he wants to push my daisies But I relate to him better than I should He laughs when I cry, says he gets him out When I'm really low And when I'm all alone With my mouth shut, sewn It's his favorite show It's true, ooh He only sneaks around here just to make me do Every little thing that makes me lose my mind Makes me lose my mind His shadow's next to me 
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to The Other Side of Darkness so you won't miss the story once it begins this fall. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a positive rating and review on your podcasting app. Follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or join our Facebook group. Visit our store at signpeaks.threadless.com. 50% of proceeds for the month of June will be donated to New Alternatives, a New York-based organization serving unhoused LGBTQ youth. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com slash signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. Intro theme by Patrick Edwards. Mid-show music by John Cohen. Outro theme by Robert McDonald. Fake Me, courtesy of Richard Orofino. All links mentioned can be found in this episode's show notes. The Other Side of Darkness was made possible thanks to the backing of over 100 supporters through sites like kickstarter.com. Here are just a few of those supporters I'd like to recognize. Kevin Allen Jr. Liz McManus. Nick Previs. Brian Edwards. Thomas Cloquet. Bob Freeman. Joe Crabe. Tim Swanson, and Jessica Cardona. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. I'll see you at the curtain call. The Other Side of Darkness is written, performed, and produced strictly as a work of parody. The Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music. 